As we uh, gear up for trivia season here in St. Louis, I want to give y'all a little quiz if you would indulge me. And I'll warn you, this is a legal quiz, and so no copying off of uh, Steve Mitchell or Brian West if they're here this morning. All right, you ready? In which country are you required by law to let someone into your home to use your restroom if they knock and ask? Any guesses? Any guesses? It's Scotland. So I don't see the Hamiltons here this morning, but we're going to have to ask Graham if he's ever had to use that. There he is. So now you know when you go home, just in case. Scotland, apparently. Uh, In which state is the Encyclopedia Britannica banned because it contains a recipe for making beer? Utah is a good guess. It's the other conservative state, Texas. It's Texas, and it's... It's also illegal in Texas to drink more than three sips of beer at a time while standing up. So be forewarned. That's a law. Last one. In which state is it still law today, technically, to tax extra any city whose mayor plays the piccolo? (laughs) Couldn't make it up. Any guesses? It's the show me state right here, Missouri. It's a fun fact. We humans have a knack for thinking up some pretty bizarre laws. But as we're going to see this morning, we're in good company. Because if we're honest, those of us here at West Hills who've been working our way through the Bible in a year together, and we're just wrapping up Exodus and transitioning to to Leviticus, we've probably been left scratching our heads at the end of some recent quiet times. Uh, But it's not just the unusual Old Testament laws that trouble us that we're going to focus on this morning. We actually find all four of our categories of tough text that we've been examining these past seven weeks now within our sermon series within the Old Testament law. We've identified four reasons together why we might consider a passage of Scripture difficult. It might seem irrelevant, out of touch with modern day society. It might appear to be inconsistent with what we find elsewhere in Scripture. Uh, Number three, it might be personally problematic. It unsettles us. It challenges us to the point of seeming unrealistic or untenable today. Or lastly, a passage can be theologically problematic. If this is really God's Word, I'm not sure how to feel about this kind of God. And all four of those categories are going to show up This morning in Exodus chapters 20 through 22, that's where we're going to be camping out if you have your Bibles and want to begin turning there. And as you do, let me provide some some further context for you. Israel here is coming off the climax of their redemptive history together as a people in chapter 14. This is the exodus from their enslavement in Egypt, for which the book is, of course, named when God parted Famously, the Red Sea. It's the single most important defining moment in Old Testament history. And then in chapter 19, we hear they have this literal mountaintop experience with God. It says, Israel encamped before the mountain, that's Mount Sinai, while Moses went up to God and the Lord called to him from out of the mountain saying, you yourselves have seen what I did to the Egyptians, how I bore you up on eagles' wings and brought you to myself. Now, therefore, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, 
Then you shall be my treasured possession among all peoples, for all the earth is mine, and you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. And the next chapter, chapter 20, and probably the second most famous passage in the whole Old Testament, God shows them how to do it, how to be his treasured possession by delivering to them the Ten Commandments. This, this moment is so weighty, it's so holy, that even the mountain can't keep still. Mount Sinai starts shaking. It's on fire. There's lightning, thunder, God's voice booming like a trumpet. The people are, are down below in the fetal position, convinced they're going to die in the presence of such a holy God. But in verse 21, we hear that one man dared, Moses dared to draw near to the thick darkness where God was. And we hear later in chapter 33 that the Lord spoke to Moses face to face as a man speaks to his friend. This is unprecedented, uncharted territory in redemptive history. And so that's where we pick up the story this morning, that's the context. Moses climbing the mountain, and this is what God has to say to him. If you would stand with me as you're able for the reading of God's word from Exodus, we'll begin in chapter 20, selected excerpts, and we'll bounce around in chapters 21 and 22 as well. Hear the word of the Lord. And the Lord said to Moses, thus you shall say to the people of Israel, you have seen for yourselves that I have talked with you from heaven. You shall not make gods of silver to be with me, nor shall you make for yourself gods of gold. An altar of earth you shall make for me, and sacrifice on it your burnt offerings and your peace offerings, your sheep and your oxen. In every place where I cause my name to be remembered, I will come to you and bless you. If you make me an altar of stone, you shall not build it of hewn stones. For if you wield your tool on it, you profane it. And you shall not go up by steps to my altar, that your nakedness be not exposed on it. Now we go ahead to chapter 21, verses 15 to 17. Whoever strikes his father or his mother shall be put to death. Whoever steals a man and sells him, and anyone found in possession of him shall be put to death. Whoever curses his father or mother shall be put to death. Now ahead to chapter 22, verses 16 to 27. You shall not wrong a sojourner or oppress him, for you were sojourners in the land of Egypt. You shall not mistreat any widow or fatherless child. If you do mistreat them and they cry out to me, I will surely hear their cry and my wrath will burn and I will kill you with the sword. And your wives shall become widows and your children fatherless. If you lend money to any of my people with you who is poor, you shall not be like a money lender to him. You shall not exact interest from him. If ever you take your neighbor's cloak and pledge, you shall return it to him before the sun goes down. For that is his only covering, and it is his cloak for his body, and what else shall he sleep? And if he cries to me, I will hear, for I am compassionate. And now back to chapter 21, verses 1 through 6. Now these are the rules that you shall set before them, Moses. When you buy a Hebrew slave, he shall serve six years, and in the seventh he shall go out free for nothing. If he comes in single, he should go out single. If he comes in married, his wife shall go out with him. If his master gives him a wife and she bears him sons and daughters, the wife and children shall be the masters and he shall go out alone. 
But if the slave plainly says, I love my master, my wife, my children, I will not go out free. Then his master shall bring him to God, and he shall bring him to the door of the doorpost, and his master shall bore his ear through with an awl, and he shall be his slave forever. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Father, your word challenges us in many ways. It challenges us personally in areas that perhaps we fall short. If you're calling to do justice, it challenges us theologically. It challenges many of our modern day sensibilities, perhaps. And yet, Your word says of itself, the grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of the Lord endures forever. So, Father, we come to you in humility this morning, seeking to submit ourselves under your word's authority, to be open. As 2 Timothy 3.16 says, your word is all of your words, God-breathed. Inspired, it's useful for teaching, for rebuke, correction, training in righteousness. We need to be taught this morning, even by these all too often ignored, difficult, tough texts from the Old Testament law. And so, Father, we pray that you might use them this morning in some way to not only challenge us, but to draw us into deeper relationship with you, more importantly. Father, what we need is most is not a a deeper obedience of our own, but a deeper trust in your obedience, you who kept the law for us in the person and work of Christ. It's in his powerful name we pray this morning. Amen. You may be seated. Now, before we dive in, I have one quick prefatory note. It bears mentioning that much of the Old Testament law, still today, we would not consider tough or controversial. So I don't want to give the false impression that it's all tough. There are plenty of laws couched in between those excerpts we just read a moment ago that would universally be considered fair and important by even the most skeptical of modern-day Bible critics. For example, in chapter 21, verses 18 and 19, we hear that in the case of assault, a man's worker's comp must be paid by his attacker. It's a good law. Later in verses 33 and 34, mandates that a person must make restitution for accidentally killing his neighbor's livestock. If he digs a pit and forgets to cover it, that's a good law. Seems fair. In fact, according to chapter 22, verse 1, if you're caught stealing another person's ox, you've got to pay him back fivefold, five ox, five oxen. That's a a good law. It's a great theft deterrent. Chapter 23, verse 1, don't lie. Verse 8, don't take bribes. Verses 4 and 5, if your neighbor's donkey is lost or suffering, help it out. Even if you hate your neighbor, help the animal out. These are undisputedly good laws. But others, if we're honest, 
leave us asking two big questions this morning. Number one, why was that law even written in the first place? I mean, these laws about altars and slaves, the death penalty. And then secondly, why are they still in my Bible today, even if it's Old Testament? We're going to get to that in a moment. But again, all Scripture, God-breathed. And so how should I think and live and worship differently in light of Exodus chapters 20 through 22? What do I do with these inspired, inerrant texts? Now let's dig in together and find out. Category number one of tough texts, some Old Testament laws seem irrelevant. And with each of these, we're going to examine an example or two from the text, and then I'm going to attempt to explain by answering the question, why is this in the Bible? And then we'll finally employ that text together, trying to apply it to our lives today. So for your example of the seemingly irrelevant kind of text that we just read, consider the altars in chapter 20, verses 22 to 26. There are Lots of fun examples we could have picked out to discuss this morning. Think of Exodus 23, verse 19. You shall not boil a young goat in its mother's milk. Leviticus 19, 19 is another famous one. You shall not wear a garment of cloth made of two different kinds of material. What's that all about? And of course, everyone's favorite, Deuteronomy chapter 25, verses 11 and 12. When men fight with one another and the wife of one draws near to rescue her husband from the hand of him who is beating him and puts out her hand and seizes the other by the private parts, then you shall cut off her hand. Your eye shall have no pity. Which, of course, begs the question, how often was this happening (laughs) in Israelite culture? that it merited a law, two verses of the Bible. This is prime real estate. There's not a word in the Bible about dating, about technology, right? But what we do know now is that if two men are fighting and one of their wives intervenes, we know how to deal with her. Well, unfortunately, we don't have time to unpack all of these this morning, but I do want to give you two overarching explanatory principles that will apply, I think, equally to all of them. Number one, we need to remember that the Bible was written for us, but not to us. These laws were written 3,500 years ago. Dating didn't exist because your parents had arranged your marriage by the time you hit puberty. They did have technology. The wheel was becoming quite popular. This is a very different time. Different people, different place than we live in today. And so we should expect the laws to seem different, strange to us. But secondly, even with those differences, as we stressed in our very first sermon on this series on genealogies and tabernacle measurements, everything that God includes in his word is here for a reason. And therefore, we have to trust that these laws really are important. And they really are still useful in some sense for us this morning. I want to try and prove it just with that example of the altars in chapter 20. You know, today we read, an altar of earth you shall make for me. Don't build an altar of hewn stones with steps leading up to it. And our eyes start to glaze over and we skip ahead in our Bible reading. But let me give you four reasons 
just on that, those particular verses on altars, why these laws are so significant and how we might actually even begin to think about employing them, applying them in our lives still today. Number one, most importantly, as Old Testament scholar Douglas Stewart points out, altars were necessary for sacrifices, which were in turn necessary for worship. And worship is the first and most basic, important response of any believer to his or her God. So if God was writing laws like this today, he might include sections on what constitutes appropriate worship in our churches, finally settle some of our age-old infighting. Drums versus organ. Jeans versus suits. We're supposed to be the frozen chosen or the charismatic spirit dancers in the aisles. And guess what? If God had included those kinds of laws for us about worship, I bet we wouldn't consider those passages irrelevant, would we? And so, my application question for us this morning is, do you know what constitutes God-honoring worship today? Are you confident? Do you, do you know how God wants to be worshipped? And do you do it? There's a similar point being made in verse 26 with a priest nakedness. What's going on there? Well, in ancient times, most people didn't wear underwear. And so Stuart explains there was the risk that a worshiper's or a priest's genitals would be exposed to the altar, which would be insulting to God. And I want to suggest to you that still today, friends, there is a kind of worship that insults God. And in short, it's man-centered worship. It's worship where we are in the spotlight. We are center stage. And I preach that with fear and trembling. I, I, I kind of wish that I preached from the back closet or something uh, to, 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 to diminish this risk of this ever being a part of our worship at West Hills because we can debate styles and preferences all we want, but there's no debating that there are many churches in 21st century America that have obscured the gospel under the clouds and clouds of smoke coming from their onstage fog machines. And if it feels like the Sunday morning worship experience is tailor-fit, designed just for you, for your entertainment pleasure, it probably was. That worship is probably all about you. If the pastor glides onto stage from a zip line, I, I, can't, I can't make this up. This is happening in churches in our country today. That's, you're at a man-centered worship church. And there are far too many churches today figuratively flashing their genitals at God in their worship. And yet there's a second way that we can interpret this prohibition against steps leading up to the altar because it's not just about preventing an insult against God. It's also about protecting the worshiper from shame. And so there's a practical dimension to this. You know, if I was, if I was preaching commando in a knee-length robe this morning, I would stick to the floor. God doesn't want these priests to be distracted from their all-important task because they're afraid that the front row might have too good of a view. He wants their minds and their hearts to be undivided in their attention and their focus on him alone. And so how do we employ this today? What's the principle for us? We need to examine ourselves. We need to examine our own hearts, our own minds. What am I thinking about during the sermon 
Do I doze off? Do I let my mind wander? Who am I thinking about during worship? Am I too self-conscious to raise my hands, too worried about what the row behind me might think? Whoa, when did she become so charismatic all of a sudden? Friends, King David danced naked through the streets of Jerusalem. Now, I'm not necessarily suggesting that this morning. Please keep your clothes on. But ask yourself, who am I here for? Not just in church, but in life. Like, who am I here, here for? Galatians 1.10 says, am I now seeking the approval of man or of God? If I were still trying to please man, I would not be a servant, a slave of Christ. We'll come back to that. Point number three, altars with elaborate craftsmanship and elevated platforms were common in the worship of false deities in antiquity. And so these laws served to make Israel distinctive. The application for us is, does your worship cause you to stand out today? There is every bit as much difference, there should be at least, between biblical Christianity and our surrounding 21st century American culture as there was between Old Testament Israelite worship and 15th century BC Canaanite paganism. So I ask you, in humility, as chief of sinners this morning, If you were put on trial for being a Christian today, would there be enough evidence in your day-to-day life to convict you? Number four, why does God specify that the altar stones must be uncut, not hewn in verse 25? That seems like an odd detail. I think it's to emphasize that nothing we do can bring us into right relationship with God. Stuart says the altar must be God's and God's alone. So again, application for us. Do you trust this morning, friends, that nothing you do can bring you into right relationship with God? We are thrilled that you're here this morning, right? But please know that your church attendance, your being here, does not put you in right standing with God. I mean, attending church is a great thing to do, but let's, let's get real. It does not impress God. This is like the least we can do for all that God has done for us. There are not enough Hail Marys in the world to atone for your sins. There are not enough goats and sheep and bulls in the world to atone for your sins. Hebrews chapter 10, every priest stands daily at his service, offering repeatedly the same sacrifices, which can never take away sins. But when Christ had offered for all time a single sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God. For by a single offering, he has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. So I ask you this morning, brothers and sisters, is Christ enough for you? Or are you still trying to hew your own stones? Here's a take-home activity for you. Make a list of all the stones that you try to hew. Everything that fills in this blank. God will accept me when I blank. Jesus said it is finished, friends. It's accomplished. Christ has fulfilled the law that you couldn't for your sake on the cross. You don't have to try and hew 
stones anymore. Category number two of tough text. Some Old Testament laws seem inconsistent with what we find elsewhere in Scripture. The example we read here was the death penalty. It was prescribed in in chapter 21, verses 15 and 17, for children who dishonor their parents. In verse 16, for human traffickers. In chapter 22, verses 18 to 20, for sorcerers, for polytheists, in cases of bestiality. In Deuteronomy 19, 21, in cases of murder, it shall be life for life, the famous an eye for an eye, a tooth for a tooth. But doesn't all of this contradict Jesus, who says, you've heard that it was said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. But I say to you, do not resist the one who is evil. But if anyone slaps you on the right cheek, turn to him the other also. Matthew 5. And and there are tons of other examples of this that we could point to. The Old Testament law's prohibition of eating shellfish, pork, while Jesus pronounces in Mark 7, all foods are clean. Which is it? The simple explanation here, explanatory point for you, is that Jesus changes everything. Jesus changes everything. You've probably heard unbelievers criticize Christians for being hypocritical, for following some of the Bible's laws, but not all of them. We pick and choose. We quote Leviticus 18.22 to prove that homosexuality is an abomination to the Lord, but then we ignore the very next chapter that forbids a man to trim his beard. What that skeptic fails to realize and understand is that none of the Old Testament laws, none of them, are still binding anymore today. Why? I've used this illustration before, but I think it's fair and helpful. God is our Father. We had had certain rules in our home, Polly and I, for Ellery, when she was two years old, that are already obsolete now that she's four. Don't try and change your own diaper. I know you're trying to help. It does not help. Now she's four. Hopefully, many of our rules in place today will be irrelevant in another two years. Don't ride the dog. She doesn't like it. (laughs) Which will be different from the rules we have when she's eight years old, 10 years old, 12 years old. Why? Because we develop, we mature, we grow, and the Bible likewise must be understood in its context of narrative development, the development of the people of Israel. It's not that these Old Testament laws were bad. They served an important function for thousands of years as God's people were growing up. And actually, this is where the metaphor, the analogy starts to fall apart and break down because in Israel's case, it wasn't that they graduated from the law by keeping it so well, just the opposite. In fact, the Apostle Paul would explain in Romans chapter 5 that the very purpose of the law was to show people our sin, our inability to keep it. And yet, yet, even at their lowest point as a nation, in exile, suffering under God's righteous judgment for breaking his law, Jeremiah 31, Ezekiel 36, God promises his people, as we read this morning, Scott read for us, a new covenant, a new heart, a new spirit, a savior from their sin. 
And in the New Testament, Jesus explains that he saves us not by abolishing the law, not by setting it aside. No, not one jot or tittle of the law will pass away until all is fulfilled, Jesus says. That's what Jesus did. He fulfilled the law's righteous demands that we couldn't in our place. And then he voluntarily traded his perfect righteousness for our unrighteousness in his substitutionary death in our place on the cross. Friends, that's the gospel. That is the good news. And so now we hear in the New Testament, in the New Covenant, that Romans 7, 6, we are now released from the law, Paul says. Hebrews 8, 13, that in speaking of a new covenant, God makes the first one obsolete. That Galatians 3, 24, 25, the law was our guardian for a season, for a time, until Christ came, but now we are no longer under a guardian. The law has been set aside, and so Tom Schreiner explains, none of the commands in the Old Testament are binding. None of them, because the whole covenant has passed away. And so really the question is, why do we keep any of the commands of the Old Testament? And Schreiner explains for us, We're now under the law of Christ, Galatians 6.2. The law of Christ is the law of love, Matthew 22. And what does love look like? Well, if you love, you will honor your father and your mother. If you love, you won't steal. If you love, you don't murder. And so some of these commands from the Old Testament will continue, carry on into the New Covenant because they're required today because the New Testament indicates they're part of the law of Christ, the law of love. And so we're not being arbitrary or picking and choosing the commands we want to obey. We're being faithful to the spirit of God's word, his eternal word. But here's your application point to employ for category number two of text. You need to go home this afternoon and you need to immerse yourself in these Old Testament laws And let it lead you to a profound sense of awe and gratitude and worship. Both that Jesus was actually able to pull it off, to accomplish this. 100% human. He was just as human as anybody in this room. And he never sinned once. 613 Old Testament laws. 613 ways to mess up. And the scoreboard was Jesus 613, sin zero. Even more than that, go home and immerse yourself in the Old Testament law so that you can revel in the truth that a guy like that would trade voluntarily. He said, no one takes my life from me. I lay it down. That he would lay down his life and his righteous standing before God the Father to bear the sins of pathetic screw-ups like you and me. Miserable wretches like you and me. And that means that we don't have to stress and fret over the law anymore. And that's good news. You ought to go home today and read Leviticus and praise God that your worship experience at West Hills today didn't involve bringing your pet up here on the altar and slitting its throat, because it should have. Without Jesus, it would have, because your sin and my sin is that severe and that heinous of an affront to the nature and character of a holy, perfect God. Praise God 
that we don't have to do that. Praise God that we don't have to march down to the kids' wing right now with stones in our hands. Because let's be honest, every single one of them has disrespected y'all this morning, haven't they, parents? Probably since you stepped foot in the building this morning. They arrived at the building. I don't want to go to church. Bam! Exodus 21.15. The kid hits you, you put him to death. You won't let me have another donut. I hate you. Boom. Kill him. Verse 17. You shall put him to death. Praise God that Christ fulfilled the law. Category number three. Some Old Testament laws seem personally problematic. The examples we considered were protections for sojourners. Chapter 22, verse 21, 23, 9. Protections for orphans and widows in verses 22 to 24. Protections for the poor, verses 25 to 27, and in chapter 23, verses 6 and 7. Stuart notes, um, no government welfare system existed in Israel. It was the responsibility of the covenant community, each Israelite individually, to contribute his share of the welfare burden personally, to treat all those in need or of limited resources as brothers and sisters as covenant family members. And so he continues, each of these types of persons lacked one or more types of protections otherwise afforded within society. Aliens lacked the guarantees of citizenship, which included the right of permanent land ownership, the right of tribal backing and legal disputes, etc. Widows also lacked direct legal participatory rights since women were represented by their husbands in legal matters. If they were too old to work, they'd have no means of providing for themselves risk of starvation, hunger, uh, orphans, so on and so forth. The poor, you get the picture. Israel was commanded collectively to take care of those who could not independently take care of themselves, those who are at risk. And so the explanation, the takeaway point for us this morning, friends, is, is really very straightforward. This is clearly a case, clearly a case, where the new covenant, law of Christ, demands our continued intervention on behalf of our needy brothers and sisters. James 1.27, religion that is pure and undefiled before God the Father is this, to visit orphans and widows in their affliction. And then in chapter 2, that we studied two Sundays ago together, James says, what good is it, my brothers, if someone says he has faith but does not have works? Can that faith save him? If a brother or sister is poorly clothed, lacking in daily food, And one of you says to them, go in peace, be warmed and filled without actually giving them the things needed for the body. What good is that? So also, faith by itself, if it does not have works, is dead. It's a personally challenging text for us in the evangelical church. We need to hear these. We need to hear Jesus in Matthew 25, 40, as you did unto one of the least of these, my brothers, feeding them, clothing them, caring for them, you did it. For me. And so, the, the, really, the only question left for us this morning is simply will we do it? Will we employ it? Will we apply it in our lives, practice, and worship? This is worship. Will we, Isaiah 117, learn to do good, seek justice, correct oppression, bring justice to the fatherless, and please, please the widow's cause? Micah 6, 8, 
What does the Lord require of you but to do justice and to love kindness and to walk humbly with your God? Amos 5, 23 and 24, Take away from me, God says, the noise of your songs. To the melody of your harps, I will not listen, but let justice roll down like waters and righteousness like an ever-flowing stream. And so if you, friends, know someone this morning in need and you have not yet done what you could to help them, you should skip our last worship song here in a few moments. Leave early because God's not going to listen to your singing anyway and go help that person instead. That is true worship. That is worship. God clearly says here, if the poor cry out to me, I will hear for I am compassionate. Do we hear their cries today? Do we have hearts of compassion that Jesus had in his day? We, will we answer their cries? Lastly, category number four. Some Old Testament laws seem theologically problematic. The most notable example from our reading from this morning was slavery. In chapter 21, verses 1 through 11, we might honorable mentions in our passages, chapters from this morning was chapter 22, verse 16. If a man seduces a virgin who is not betrothed and lies with her, he shall give the bride price for her and make her his wife. It's a tough text. I've also already alluded to what has become one of the most controversial Old Testament laws, most Highly charged, debated, discussed laws in our day, Leviticus 18.22, God calls uh, unequivocally homosexual acts an abomination. And it's not just the Old Testament. Romans 1, it's an abomination. New covenant. So listen, I could stand up here this morning and try and explain away these controversies. You You take the issue of slavery I could explain that the word used for slave can also simply mean worker, employee, servant in Hebrew, that forced slavery among Israel was prohibited in the law, but that the law gave a, afforded a person the right to sell himself and his wife into slavery due to poverty of debt, a term of servitude that would be limited to six years out of God's mercy. Thus, it was more like indentured servitude, not like the old chattel slavery of the American South that we often think of. Further, a master was obligated to provide for his service upon his release, give him all that he could carry. And so indeed, the law reflects, uh, Stuart says, the, the fact that when obediently practiced, Israelite service could be so beneficial to a worker that he or she would actually choose to enlist for a lifetime of service with the same employer. So I could try and give you all the reasons why these laws aren't, aren't so challenging to us and our modern sensibilities. But at the end of the day, there's no way of getting around the fact, tiptoeing around it, God's law allowed for human beings to own one another. It did. It did. And, and that can feel pretty problematic for some of us today. Because freedom and individual autonomy are our chief virtues as a society, and so their opposite enslavement then necessarily becomes the most heinous sin imaginable. 
And yet, even in the New Testament, Paul tells slaves to obey their masters. Even in the New Covenant, Paul actually calls us slaves of Christ in Romans 6. Basically, the, the exhortation is, you're all slaves to something. Praise God that you can now be made slaves of righteousness. Christ has purchased you. 1 Corinthians 6, he purchased us with his precious blood. You were bought with a price. You are a slave. Christian, you're a slave. Do you know that? You're a slave of Christ. But that is not inherently a bad thing. That is a great thing. Because it all depends on who your master is. And so with any of these passages this morning, we've got to ask ourselves, am I going to impose my 21st century surrounding kind of worldview values on God's timeless word, or am I going to trust God when he says in Isaiah 55, 8, and 9, my ways are higher than your ways, declares the Lord. Are we going to trust that God has his reasons, even if we don't always understand them, for some of these laws that really challenge us? Do we, tr- do we give ben- God the benefit of the doubt? Do we trust that he is so condescending, so merciful, that God is so accommodating for our utter brokenness and sinfulness that God would even adapt his law to make room for things like slavery, like polygamy, like the death penalty? Because God knew that we needed that 3,500 years ago. That's where human society was 3,500 years ago. And yet God is so merciful and loving that 2,000 years ago he accommodated for our utter sinfulness and brokenness in need by sending something better than the law. The fulfillment of the law. Christ Jesus. So how do we employ this, friends? We trust him. We, we trust him. You know, study the law wrestle with it, seek to understand why this is good that God would command some of these things. And we'll continue working through it together. We've got a couple more doozies of of sermons coming up ahead of us. But at the end of the day, are we going to trust Him? Are we going to trust God that if it's here, it's here for a reason, and that it's good, it's for our good? So in conclusion, bring us back to that question. What do, we, what do we do with the Old Testament law? I think we want to let the law drive us to a deeper appreciation and worship of the gospel this morning. Because what is the law except for, I mean, think about what the gospel is. Four very simple truths good news that summarizes all of Christianity. Number one, God is holy. He's perfect. Number two, you're not. I'm not. We're not. Man is sinful. Number three, Jesus died the death we deserve to reconcile us back to a holy, perfect God. And number four, all that we have to do, all that we can do for his death to be applied to our 
lives, to our sins, for the forgiveness of our sins and put us back in right standing with God is by faith alone. That's it. God's holy, man is sinful, Christ is sufficient, faith is still required. And what is the Old Testament law other than conviction of all four of those things? God is this holy. Like, read the law. He's really set apart. That's what holy means. He is other. And that we're sinful. I don't know what the scoreboard is in my life, but it's not 613 to zero, and it's not in your life either. We are sinful, and yet, number three, Christ is sufficient. And number four, it's by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, that we can be set free. Amen? Amen. Let's pray.